What's the um, biggest gift you have ever given? Just think about it for a second, right? So what's the biggest gift you've ever given? All right, you got it? Now, were there strings attached to that gift? Yeah, your answer is yes. All right, so yes, were there strings attached? Now, I was, I was thinking about this because last weekend, Suzanne and I celebrated 14 years. Thank you. Okay. 14 years of marriage, and um, it got me thinking about other anniversaries we've had, and uh, I remember about, we were talking about this last night, I was like, hey, were there, was there ever a time that I gave you gifts uh, with strings attached? She was like, yes. And so we were thinking back on it, and I remember uh, she reminded me that uh, about our five-year anniversary, we just celebrated 14, about the, our fifth anniversary, we went to New York um, and to go hang out and enjoy the city uh, and do some shopping. And um, I had like this side hustle, which... That's just laughable. I feel like I always have a side hustle going on, you know? So like, had this side hustle going on where I was coming up, this is before we moved to Memphis, coming up and doing a lot of speaking engagements. And, um, and so from that money, two things were happening. One, she was like, like, how is it you're going to preach the gospel when you don't really live the gospel out at home with me often? And I'm like, great. <laughs> um, and so then I felt like I had blood money on my hands, right? from preaching the gospel but not living the gospel out. So I spent all my money on, I took her to Tiffany's uh, in, in New York and spent all my money on her to get whatever she wanted, all right? Ah, what a good husband, right? I did that so that she would leave me alone, all right? And let me just do what I wanted to do. Like there were strings attached to me giving her that opportunity to go shop away in Tiffany's, okay? So maybe you can relate to that. That was the biggest thing I gave and there were definitely strings attached. But it, it doesn't just happen with people, does it? Like I remember when I first moved to college, I was 17, turning 18, and um, I went to a, um, a school in the Midwest called Oral Roberts University, super uber charismatic school, right? And I was really into this concept of plant a seed, expect a miracle. Anybody been in church long enough or in other circles to ever hear that? Okay, God bless you. You haven't. Okay, like two of you. All right, so here's the thing. There's this concept that if you, if you give, God was going to be giving back to you, right? Pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. And so that was like the reality I lived in. Like if I give, God will give back. That's how it works. Uh, like quid pro quo, right? And... I remember somebody came to me, we were talking, and they were talking about how uh, they didn't have any money for laundry, uh, and so I gave them like all my laundry money, all these quarters, it was like $30 worth of quarters, and for like an 18-year-old who just moved away from home, that was a big deal. And I remember giving that money and just thinking like, I'm just going to bless this person, and, and then wondering, is God going to bless me? Is God going to bless me? And that's just kind of the reality I grew up in this quid pro quo relationship with God. Now, there may be a lot of good, as good aspects to that and some things that are true. Like, Scripture is clear that there's something about us giving and God wants to, to bless us back. But for me, what I found, there was a couple of ideas I had. Like, if I was generous, God be generous to me. But here's what was, like, almost unsaid. That I can coerce God to be generous. And the other thing that kept coming to mind that was kind of between the lines was... God won't and doesn't want to be generous unless I'm generous. God won't and he doesn't want to be generous unless I'm generous. 
I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I think if you kind of sit with that long enough, you could relate to that. Like, does God actually want to be generous with me? And in turn, there starts to be built up in us this sense that maybe we do not live in a very benevolent world. Maybe we don't really have maybe a benevolent and generous God. Now, that wasn't the case, though, in this passage. We find um, in the beginning of the book of Acts, this act one of origins we're talking about, that something radical was going on. The, the spirit was moving. The, the goose was loose. The spirit was loose doing things in people's lives. And we find that, like, even Peter and others are talking about this going, like, there are these times of refreshment, of revival that is right here for you to have. At the end of Acts 2, we read, it's kind of like a summary of what was happening in the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and into fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, the two words I want you to pay attention to in this is the first word at the top, it's fellowship. And then the second is this phrase, had everything in common. Now, if we were reading Greek, we would see patterns, like the words were intentional. And these two words actually are joined together. This first word, fellowship, is something you've probably heard before. It's this word koinonia. It's actually a word that Paul really, really likes. He uses it a lot throughout the New Testament. It's actually where we actually derive the, the idea of partnership at Christ City. We wanted to move to a partnership here. We wanted to move to a fellowship. And, and what it really means is partnering together in something. That you find something in common. You say, this is the thing we want to partner together. Like we just actually had koinonia around these families and these children. We were confessing that we will partner together to love these children and these families and support them. Now, the second word is koinos. And koinos simply means to share something. That when you have something to partner around together, now you have something to share in, to give back and forth in. And these two words, you can see how they're common, how they come from the other. And Luke is wanting us to pick up on that. Now, what it's saying to us that these early Christians, they partnered together, and then they shared all that they had in that thing. And we see that there's like these two realities that come out of the early church that are really interesting. Now, remember, the early church is not the pattern that we have to go, how do we reproduce that? There are acts and demonstrations we're trying to wrap our mind around and see what could still be today. But the two things that are very clear is that there was... Evidence of the Spirit at work around people who were different getting on the same page, which is really incredible. People who are different getting on the same page. I mean, just think how hard your marriage is, right? Getting on the same page with your spouse. Like, friendships may be a little bit different, like, because you're choosing, in a sense, these people, but the more you get to know them, it's kind of difficult to work it out. It's difficult at your job to get on the same page with people. Much less at church, it's difficult to get on the same page with one another. So, the evidence was is that people with diverse backgrounds were getting on the same page. But the second was this, that people at various economical and social standings were doing what they could to meet the needs of one another. 
is quite amazing and quite profound and beautiful that all these people are trying to get on the same page together and at different levels of economic and social status are going, how do I meet your needs? How do I come alongside you? How do I help support whatever it is you're going through? Which takes us then to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, because what it's talking about in Acts 2 is actually, this is what they're talking about. So let's read here. It says in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. The ESV, which I like, it says they were of one heart and soul and had everything in common. They were of one heart and soul that their the word for heart is cardia, like the, this, this organ, this, this thing in them pumping was connecting with one another. You know how much work that takes, right? To really connect your hearts emotionally with another person. And then this idea of psyche, which is the word for soul, it's not just your mind, it's the breath and essence of your being. That their hearts and emotions and the essence of their being were somehow all coming together. And look then what happens when, when this goes down. Verse 34 says, there were no needy persons among them. None. Just think of the type of atmosphere that must have been like. To be so joined, so simpatico, so connected with one another that you're willing and able, those who are weak can talk about their weakness because I know that you're with me. I know that you're wanting them to connect with me. I know they're not going to look to judge me or know that I'm trying to get something from you out of it, but I'm actually just needy. And then those who had didn't look at people around them as pariahs taking all their stuff from them, but instead were going, I want to help you with this thing. They were so connected. It's quite amazing to consider what is going on in this, in this passage. But then the question is, what, what sparked that? What's the koinonia around? What's the fellowship around that would move them to want to take care of the needs of people? So let's read those verses in full context. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Here's what they koinonia around. The resurrection of Jesus and the extravagant grace they received from this new Lord. That's what sparked them. They were sparked by the reality that there was a new emperor in town in this world. And this emperor wasn't like the emperors they were used to. It wasn't an emperor who was quid pro quo, like, you'll do for me and maybe I'll do for you. It was an emperor who said, I will do for you, I have done for you, I will continue doing for you. And I just want you to have it. Like, I want you to have a, a reality of benevolence. And these people were, were so taken by this resurrection to prove that, like, listen, nobody's beaten a resurrected dead man, right? We all can agree on that one. Like, no one's taken that person down. It's, you know, it's like Judah Ragnar. Nobody's taken down Judah Ragnar, right? Like, nobody's taken down some kind of resurrected dude. Like, you're going, well, I guess you win, okay? So they all knew who had the power, and yet it wasn't just the power of lording it over, but it was the power of giving of himself fully so that they now could receive extravagant grace, that their neediness could be met and not shamed. 
and that in turn, from their privilege, they could give and not feel like they were losing out. The resurrection and the grace of Christ. See, this meant that a person could be radically needy because of what they've received in Jesus, and it meant a person could be radically generous because of what they've experienced in Jesus. People sharing their heart and essence, their, their cardia and psyche around the good news, and people exemplifying the good news to the very heart and essence of each other. Now, if there was a phrase I could use for this to sum it all up, this early church lived in a generous reality. They lived in a generous reality. That the world they knew was so generous and so benevolent, it allowed them the freedom to interact with one another in ways that were unheard of at this time. And I would submit ways are unheard of even today. We've caught up and surpassed in every area. We've surpassed in technology and science and psychology. But the only thing we've never been able to catch up to Jesus on is grace and love and his ethics of kindness. We're still chasing after it because it's just so radical and it's so other. Now, generosity, though, isn't a foreign idea. This is understood and pushed in any area you would look at of self-help, psychology, doesn't matter, science. Everybody understands the importance of generosity. As a matter of fact, at Notre Dame, uh, they started a, a department called Science of Generosity Initiative. And I guess got a couple of things I want to read to you from it as they were doing research around this. Here's what they said. Generosity is not identical to pure altruism. Since people can be authentically generous in part for reasons that serve their own interests as well as those of others. Indeed, insofar as generosity is a virtue, to practice it for the good of others also necessarily means that doing so achieves one's own true long-term good. So they're saying no such thing as altruism. There is such thing as altruism, but honestly, you can still be generous and not altruistic, which I would agree. You can be generous and not altruistic. Like, it's a generous thing to give somebody some money on the street. That's generous. The question is, are you doing that because, like, you don't really have a generous God. That's the only way that God will be generous to you. We end up doing things to get things. And that's not a, a bad thing. It's called America, <laughs> right? I mean, it's built on this concept that if I do this service, I will receive this money back. It's trays and goods. Um, and the, the idea that, well, let me just keep reading. Here, the second half. It says, if we or enough of us are not generous, we not only would not survive, but could never flourish as persons. A world without human generosity would be like an internal combustion engine without lubricating oil. Pretty soon, it would overheat and shut down. Generosity, like trust and reciprocity, provides a necessary lubricant for the functional human, so, social, and institutional relations necessary for human thriving. Like it's necessary. You actually can't even function as a human being unless you're generous.
but you still can function as a human being and like doing something to get something. Like, that's part of it too. And what makes this early community so radical, they're not doing something to get something. They're doing something because something's been done for them. Which we just have to pause and consider for a second. Like, is that the reality we live in? Do we do to get a good feeling, which is fine, a sense of like, I'm a part of this mission of Christ in this world, sure, that's good. But at some point in time, that engine will break down. And you will need more to keep going. You're going to need more to keep going. You're going to need a God who's bigger than that. And this early church, they just seemed, they just seemed to have it. Look at verse 34. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So spontaneous generosity breaks out. And people are so taken with this good news of Christ. They're so taken with the, the resurrection and the grace. They're like, I think I just want to give what I can. Like, I see neediness around me. And the gospel is, if there's neediness, that's what Christ came to meet. Like, that's the entry fee into the kingdom, is neediness. So they're like, okay, so this is how we do it. Like, people get to be needy, and then people get to help meet those needs. It was the breaking down of this kind of social reality that people had to hold on to what was theirs and not let go of it. In your bulletins, we have a part here from, from James Baldwin. He said, it is rare indeed that people give. Most people guard and keep. They suppose that it is they themselves and what they identify with themselves that they are guarding and keeping. Whereas what they are actually guarding and keeping is their system of reality and what they assume themselves to be. Here's what the early church is doing. People of privilege are giving of their privilege, giving up their privilege to elevate those who are not privileged, marginalized, and disinherited. This is at the base and bedrock of the gospel. And friends, here's what I would say. If we don't get that, we're not understanding the gospel. If that's the thing we have to always go back to, and it's okay to wrestle with, but always go back to and go like, eh, I don't really know about that. And by the way, this is not socialism, Marxism, anything like that. Because this is a monarchy. There is a lord and an emperor. That's why those models, just like capitalism, ultimately cannot work. The only thing that can work is if you have a benevolent emperor and king who's in control. You need a benevolent judge. And for the early church, they lived with this reality. There was a benevolent God, a benevolent king, who was for me and with me. And therefore, what I had, I could use to help others with. They were breaking, listen, they were breaking the system of reality that you must hold on to. And if you ever give of something, it must be given back to you. We go on and we see here in verse 34 that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So like something's going on. Barnabas or um, Joseph, he's like, Man, this is so great. Now, you got, they're, they're talking about him being from Cyprus for a reason. Cyprus was a very wealthy island. Okay, They had a lot of goods and services there. 
They are the one of the, the, the most interacted with as far as the trades and goods they could provide. They're trying to say here, this guy Barnabas, he's well off. Like Barnabas has got money, all right? Like he is, he's living the good life. But Barnabas, his life has gotten a hold of by the spirit. The goose got him, all right? If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say the goose, sorry, listen to a few sermons ago, all right? So the, the spirit got a hold of his life. And he's not ashamed because he's a privileged person, but he realizes that in his privilege, he needs to be able to give of that. Listen, so many times we use like privileged white guilt to get people to do things. And just so you know, that will not sustain. You're going to need more than white guilt to want to move into the areas of this city and the world and to meet the needs of people who aren't like you. That maybe is a fine start, but the engine will explode. You're going to need a, such a deep reality that you see the systems at work around you and go, these systems are leveraged for me to work out and not for other people. Now, I can keep with that train and the gravy train will be good. But will I really be able to say I'm following Jesus? Will I really be able to say that I'm doing whatever I can to move the gospel forward? Yeah, I'm making sure that people get right doctrine, right ideas, but am I really making sure they get better lives? It's a challenge for all of us. I mean, we are a 90 plus percent white privileged church, and that's not wrong. That's not a bad, shameful thing. But until we see that and then go, now what do we do with this? How do we, how do we interact with one another, with people who have needs here in this congregation and even those outside of here? It's challenging. Now Barnabas saw this, but here's what was interesting. He lays at the feet of the apostles. So like people are like, let's do it. Let's all go. Let's like sell. And it, it's lands, plural. People who own lands, plural. And it's also people who owned homes, plural. So they're giving these things. Now, when others see what has happened, because here's what happens with Barnabas. Barnabas, like, is invited in. I don't know why Barnabas was invited in. I don't know if because of his name. I don't know if it's because he was so good at encouraging people. But like something, like they liked Barnabas. So he got invited into Paul's posse, right? We'll find Barnabas and Paul doing stuff, hanging out, traveling the, the known world at that time, and preaching the gospel. And so people are picking up on something. Well, it looks like if I give, I get in. Like I get into the inner circle. So here's what happens next. We see in chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now there's, there's some foreshadowing here that the, um, the writer Luke wants us to see. Ananias, his name literally means whom God has graciously given to. Like he wakes up every day and when he says his name, he's reminded, God has graciously given to me. That's his name. And the name for sapphire, where we get sapphire, means beautiful. So we have whom God has graciously given to and beautiful. Like I think they're kind of well off. It sounds like a lot of their needs are met in life. And so they decide though, hey, this whole selling land thing and house thing, let's jump in on it. And I don't think all their motives were wrong. I think they really probably were inspired by it. But it says, 
that they sold the lamb and then they kept part of it back, but then they put the rest of the apostles' feet. Now, what they were implying, though, to the apostles and others around them was that, look how generous we are. We're giving it all just like everybody else. We're sacrificing just like everybody else. What they wanted was the recognition without the sacrifice. They wanted the trust without being trustworthy. Um, they were like white lying, telling fibs, spinning things work out for them. Now, um, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands of who lied this past week, but I would think if we were to classify all the sins that we 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 were, let's just say like, I'm not going to ask you to throw it out because it could get messy in this church, right? But like we were to say like, here's the worst sin and here's the worst sin and here's the worst sin. Okay, well, when I read this here, this sounds like a pretty bad deal. Like deception. Acting like you're in, that you're partnering with something, but you're really holding back. Wanting to present and project your image, but so you're offering some kind of maybe transparency without vulnerability. And here's the overall message. I mean, there's just a few notes I would say here. Now, just remember, they sold their land unprovoked by the apostles. This was not required to be a part of the community. They sold it because they wanted to. Also, they told everyone that all the money they earned, like, that they gave it, but they really didn't. And then it says in verse 3, it says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Didn't you have a choice? You didn't have to do this. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Like, you could have done whatever you wanted to. It was fine. You didn't have to give the money. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. All right, so let me try to handle this as best as I can, all right? Umbrella of grace. Whenever we have, like, new ideas at staff, we'll just say, like, and we don't want to, like, be attacked or people throw tomatoes, we go, hey, umbrella of grace, all right? So, umbrella of grace, thank you. Um, here's what we know. Satan filled his heart which is a playoff of chapter 4, verse 31, which we didn't read, but you can look and it says that all were filled by the Spirit, that people were these containers needed to be filled. And we know that Satan had filled his heart, which I'm not going to try to explain that away. But then we see as well, it never says in this passage that God killed them. There's no translation, no Greek that says God killed Ananias and Sapphira. Just so we're clear on that. Never says that. Now, there does, though, seem to be some kind of divine judgment in this, right? Like, we just can't read it and go like, well, just kind of nothing happened. Like, there seems to be something happening. And here's what I'd say. I think there's two ways. Maybe there's a third way but there isn't. I think there's maybe two ways of kind of interacting with this. And both are difficult, just so you know. There's one interaction with this that says, that's what it says, that settles it. So therefore, we see that God killed them in judgment. Now, if you go that path, which would not, listen, 
There are plenty of scholars and traditions that have pointed that out. If you go that path, just so you know, you have a lot to reconcile around how loving and gracious is this God. You end up maybe trying to explain God away too much because we just saw that the face of God is Jesus on the cross. And this is where God's saying, I'm done with this whole wrath thing. Like, I'm going to take on all the things that you deserve. But then this happens. So there's just one side of tension. And here's the other side of tension. That there are other scholars that say, because they didn't really know how to deal with it at the time, that there could have been such anxiety attack on Ananias and Sapphira that they had a heart attack right there. And it was just so coincidental, they go, oh my God, I guess that must be God, right? Now, if you do that, you can go away trying to almost um, subjugate the scripture to your own ideas. You see both sides there? They're both really hard. And guess what? I'm not going to resolve it for you because I wouldn't take that work away from you. The Bible's intentionally messy and difficult, and we'd be willing to interact with it and wrestle with those things that we like and we don't like, the things we get and we don't get. But the question I would ask for you above all this is, do you have a benevolent God? That's the question. And they did. What exactly happened here? I don't know. But that's not the point, I don't think. I think the point they're trying to make is this. Lying, deception, putting up fronts, dissolves koinonia. That if you want a shot at having real community where you really can be needy and you really can show up and talk about the things that you are without in life, and then perhaps people who are privileged can really enter into that pain with you and meet you there, the thing you can't have are half-truths. Within the recovery community, they have a line that says, half-truths availed us nothing. You no longer can live in a half-truth. It's got to be full truth. Full truth with consequences, full truth with neediness, and full truth that then can meet the needs of those around you. This early church was not afraid of being needy. They were not afraid of being honest. They were willing to jump in, and they knew something. It's trying to show the contrast. You either get this or you don't, and if you don't, be careful, because you can act like you're a part of something when really you're holding back. So are you holding back here? That's why when people come and they say, man, I can't wait to be a part of this church, I'm like, slow down, Nellie. I don't know, their name isn't Nellie, but I'll use that because I grew up in Mississippi. Slow down, Nellie, you know? Like, let's just like count the cost of being a part of this church. Not that because we're going to make you suffer or something. I mean, it happens, but we're not going to make you suffer. We just want to make sure that like you get it because we're living in a lot of tension here, trying to do something that maybe others aren't always trying to do. And with that, that means you have to be willing to be known when you show up. Not just transparent, but vulnerable. Which means we have to learn how to be truthful and honest with one another. I think there is a way of living in an altruistic, generous way with one another. And I think when we center around the main things, resurrection and grace, not yeah, but how do you look at this with baptism? Or how do you look at this here? I think those all are important things, but they are not the essential things. The essential things for the early church was resurrection and then understanding the grace that came out of that. That's it. And it was enough for them to have this kind of movement. So why can't it be enough for us?
And I think what this is pointing out is that to the degree you have a generous reality in interaction with those around you, so to the degree you believe in a generous world. To the degree you have a generous interaction with one another proves whether or not you believe in a generous world, that you live in a benevolent world. So then here's the question. Who's in control of this world? I think it really comes down to, do you have a generous God? If you don't have a generous king, a generous Lord, a generous God who really is working on all things, then that means it's up to you to figure out life. And that means you have to hold back a little bit and stay within the systems. Maybe you give, maybe you don't. And listen, it doesn't just work here with generosity. It works in any of these areas. Think about it. If you have a stingy God who won't really help you and love you, you'll be stingy. If you have a judgmental God that you feel like every time you mess up and this God's going to point it out to you, guess what you end up being? Judgmental. If you have an aloof God that's like a watchmaker, he sets the watch and leaves it alone, and you have to cry out to this God and this God never hears you, guess what you'll end up being? Aloof, distant, and eventually cynical. This reality is at the center of all things that we're trying to do. That if we don't understand that we have a generous God, we will not be a generous people. We'll be stingy, we'll hold back, we'll make people jump through hoops. When people actually say, I'm in need, we'll go, well, but really how needy are you? And we'll question and shame people and never get to really experience the depth and wonders of what it could look like to be a people in Koinonia together. It brought me to this quote from Richard Rohr. If God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and on our side. Do you have that? And if you don't, here's where it starts, if you want to see that change, just owning it and saying that. Like, I don't have that. And I don't know what to do about that. Guess what? Neediness. Because then you'll actually start meeting people around you that maybe they do, which then now in turn will encourage you. But if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face, that means we live in a benevolent world. And so with that... I've been thinking on this for a little while and I brought it to the staff and we were talking about it. You know, the whole book of Acts is about acting. Trying it out. Seeing, throwing some pasta on the wall and seeing what sticks, right? And so with that, we started talking about what would it look like to try some of this stuff out. So here's what we're going to do. I'm calling it um, the generous project. The generous project. And the project, because we're going to come back to it from time to time as we go through the book of Acts. And here's what we're going to ask you to do today and next Sunday. We're going to ask you, we're going to have these baskets out in the front. We're going to ask you when you get done taking communion to put money inside those baskets. We're going to ask you to put money in there. If you got cash, put cash in there. If you got check, which maybe you still have checks. Are those things still out? If you have checks, you put checks. 
Or you can even text 77, you can text Christ City Church to 77977, and you can give money that way. Whatever money we get in today is going to go towards that. And here's what we're going to say to you. Here comes the hard part. You going like, oh, giving anonymously? Fine. Here's the hard part. This week, we're going to ask you that if you have any needs in this church, to let us know. If you have financial needs in this church, we're going to ask you, which takes a lot of humility to do, to let us know. And then give us a chance to help meet those needs. Because we want to, like, demonstrate this stuff. And then we're going to do it again next Sunday. And then next Sunday, whatever money we have left over, um, Rachel Robinson and, and, and her Mercy and Justice team have working it out. We're going to send um, a team or two to different grocery stores, set up a table, put up a sign. Are you looking for a miracle or groceries? Maybe both. And then like have people walk with other people and just love them and help buy their groceries because we want to live in a benevolent world. And we're even going to ask you that if you're willing to, to go help out with that. Friends, we've got to be willing to demonstrate this stuff. And trust me, is it scary? You better believe it's scary. Is it hard being needy? Yes. But if you have Jesus as the face, then that means you get to live in a benevolent world. So I'm going to ask you to give today in ways that maybe you're not used to or comfortable with and see what happens with that. Good? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you that you exemplify your benevolence and generosity to us through him. And it is our heart and our desire today to receive that first and foremost. And then be able to live out of that. And, um, and so I just ask that now as we come forward to, you know, partake of communion, that we really be reminded of how generous you are and how that could change us, move us out, break the systems we find ourselves in where we end up with and others without, or even gives us the empowerment to speak up about our needs because we just need you more. So we ask for these things. And pray that you would be with us now as we come before you. In the name we pray. Amen.